from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Well, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And let us now prepare our hearts for the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Mary Claire Alvine, and I am a retiring elder from session. Please join me this morning in the call to worship. Make a joyful noise to God, all the earth, and sing the glory of God's name. Give to our Lord glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Because of your great power, your enemies cringe before you. All the earth worships you. They sing praises to you, sing praises to your name. Come, let us worship God. Scripture text for this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Page 147 in the New Testament, if you'd like to follow along. Verses 15 through 25. Listen to God's word to you and to me. Paul writes, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, 
who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing our middle hymn, number 434. seated. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this word afresh to us so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the whole of Sigmund Freud's work was grounded in the notion that human beings, from a psychoanalytic point of view, possess three voices or three components that make us who we are. One voice he called the id, I-D, the id. And the id is comprised of the primal instincts that are basic to our humanity. These are the subconscious drives, the subconscious passions that we are all born with, hunger and thirst and survival, the longing for social connection, self-centered and and self-serving impulses. All of these belong to the voice that Freud called the id. Another voice he names is called the superego. Now, the superego is the moral voice of the human being. Freud argued that we are not innately born with this voice, but rather we learn it. 
We learn morality as we are formed in particular communities, as we are instructed by our parents, our teachers, as to what is right and what is wrong. We learn this superego part of ourselves. It is formed in us through these social structures and these various communities. This, of course, also includes religious communities and their ethical and theological teachings as well. So the superego, what that does, says Freud, is it constructs and defines what is morally good, what is right and acceptable, who we ought to be and what we ought to obey. The third and final voice Freud called the ego. The ego is sort of the mediator between the id and the superego. It is constantly negotiating those impulses and those ideals. It's constantly at the middle of this struggle and this battle. And the ego is what we actually present to the world. The ego is what people see of us. But behind the scenes, the ego is doing the heavy lifting of battling these impulses and these ideals as they come often in conflict with one another. Freud was, was fond of using uh, an analogy uh, of a horse and a rider. He said the horse is like the id. The horse is untamed. The horse is wild. And it needs some control. That's the id. And the ego is the rider. And the rider climbs on the horse. And the rider seeks to tame this wild beast. Seeks to tame it and then seeks to direct it. And the direction that, that the ego, the rider, is trying to move it toward is set by the superego. The superego says, this is where you ought to go. This is the destination. This is the morality. This is good. And so the ego tries to navigate and negotiate and lead the horse to that particular moral vision. A few weeks ago, I watched the film Hacksaw Ridge. I assume some of you have uh, seen this film. It's the true story of Medal of Honor winner Desmond Doss who served as a combat medic during World War II. And Doss was a devout Christian. He was also a thoroughgoing pacifist. He felt compelled by God to join the Allied efforts, to join the U.S. Army. And yet at the same time, he held this deep conviction in terms of his pacifism. And so that required him to not touch a gun. He would come in and serve, but he would never take up arms. And throughout the film, he is strongly encouraged, and that's putting it lightly, he is strongly encouraged to forego this conviction. He's strongly encouraged to take up arms with the rest of, his, rest of the soldiers and to take uh, shooting practice and learn how to use the weapon. And, and despite obeying every other order to a T, and despite the fact that physically he excelled beyond the other soldiers in their basic training, they continued to assault him. First verbally and then physically. In fact, in one scene, a soldier... Uh, one, someone in his platoon walks up to Desmond Doss and he punches him in the face and then invites him to retaliate. Says, hit me back, punch me back. 
And, and the filmmakers do this wonderful job of capturing the angst and the anxiety and the struggle that Doss must have been going through in that moment. Because there are these instincts, these primal instincts that call him to hit him back. In fact, the viewer has a moment, at least I did, where you say to yourself, you should hit him in the face. And yet at the same time, at the same time, you say to yourself, I hope he holds his conviction. And you're invited into this struggle within. Will his natural carnal instincts win the day? Or will this moral vision, this super ego view and vision, will that prevail in this moment? What Freud described and what Desmond Doss experienced is, I think, very close to what the Apostle Paul experienced and what he was referencing in Romans 7, 15 to 25. He's, he's writing not in psychoanalytic terms, but, but he's writing in very clear theological ones. Now, the, essential to the coherence of this text, right, essential to the way this text makes sense at all, is the notion of the superego. There actually has to be a superego at work here if this scripture makes any sense. Otherwise, the text collapses on itself. The text won't make any sense unless Paul has a superego, unless he has a moral vision of what is good, a moral vision of what is pleasing and purposeful in God's sight. And Paul calls that the law of God. He calls it the law of God. And without the law of God, there is no Romans 7. Do you follow me? There is no Romans 7 without the law of God. He's only able to offer a critique of his own life because he recognizes the struggle within. He recognizes what he calls the flesh and its carnal basic instincts. And at the same time, he recognizes from his superego, what has formed him, which is the very law of God. There, there's continuity, isn't there, with this theological way of framing this reality that all of us face? There's continuity with that and with what Sigmund Freud laid out, that there is this battle between the id and the superego. We, we hear it right in Paul's words. I think it's captured wonderfully in verses 22 and 23 of this text. For I delight in the law of God, says Paul, in my inmost self. That's the superego talking. I delight in the law of God. But I see in my members, I see in my flesh, another law at war with the law of my mind. That's the id. That's the carnal, that's the sinfulness, that's the flesh. It makes me captive, he says, to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And there his ego is asking the question. His ego is, is sensing the struggle within, between this moral vision of God's law and the carnal desires of the flesh. I want to be crystal clear at this point. This crisis that Paul names, right, this existential reality that he is living through is only possible. It is only possible if the superego and the id want different things. 
There is no text if they want the same thing. It's only possible if they want different things. It's a conflict between sin and flesh and the law of God. Sin and flesh, says Paul, want one thing, and the law of God wants something entirely different. And there is the origin of the struggle. There is no struggle if they want and yearn for the same things. But what happens to a human being? What happens to a society if there is no conflict between the carnal, innate desires and the moral good? What if the id and the superego want the same things? What if the id and the superego become indistinguishable from one another? What if they occupy the same space? What if you cannot tell them apart in your own life? I mean, isn't that what has happened throughout, the, uh, throughout history and, and continues to happen in contemporary society? Right in our time, in our place, have we not felt the ground to continue to shift from a society grounded in a moral good or at least the common good for all? Marked by the ideal of a moral vision, something that lights our way, something that guides our steps, shifting now to a permissive society where the mantra in our time and our place is a two-word phrase, you may. You may. It's not that we've always lived up to these moral standards, far from it, but are we not sensing a shift where the id and the superego are indistinguishable? Where the id and the superego want the same things. Is it not so that morality is being dictated by what the individual id desires? That's the new morality. One's carnal baseline, self-centered interest. The phrase of our time is, you may. You may do what you please. You may commit adultery if that fulfills a basic need for your own self-realization. You may use all sorts of foul and degrading and dehumanizing language because you can. You, you may cheat on the test as long as you don't get caught. You may assault the political or religious or socioeconomic or racial other through violence of all kinds because somehow you have deemed them to be a threat to what your id desires. You may focus exclusively on what is good for you alone and not what is good for the vulnerable, the left out, or the left behind. I mean, in so many ways, has not our society become a slave to that which satisfies the id? That is the new slavery. Our master is now that which meets my rudimentary instincts and desires through wealth, through power, through revenge, control, and conquest. Is it not true that ours is a culture of self-fulfillment? of self-centeredness, of self-promotion? Are we not seeing that the basic carnal impulses of humanity, what Paul theologically called sin and the law of the flesh, have not only become acceptable in our time, but they have become the norm. They have become the standard for a moral vision. Dare we even ask, has this new moral vision replaced even the law of God? 
Has not our society encouraged everyone to borrow Freud's analogy, encouraged everyone to, to mount the stallion and to just let it ride wherever it wants to go, foregoing the, the moral standards we once held by society or from religious communities or even the standards set out by common decency, and we just let the stallion to its own will and let go of the reins and let it take us where it wants to go. Today, it appears that the id and the superego are the same. The id is the superego and the superego is the id. And what becomes of a society like this? What happens to a people when this happens? What becomes of an individual when the id and the superego are indistinguishable? What happens, I would suggest, is what we see of the darkness in the world. Fragmentation, disunity, isolation, and loneliness. What happens is violence. What happens is chaos and destruction. What happens is oppression and terrorism. What happens is totalitarianism, where master status is given to whatever provides the id the most freedom to be its own superego. That's what enslaves us whether it comes to the form of the marketplace or political ideology or even philosophical or religious worldview. Paul's existential crisis laid out for us in Romans 7, with all of its anxiety, with all of its hand-wringing, with all of its struggle within, is ultimately, by God's grace, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, is ultimately, God's, by God's grace rather, where we ought to be. The struggle is faithfulness. The struggle in which Paul engages is the struggle between the law of God and the law of sin. In psychoanalytic terms, is the struggle between the id and the superego. For if there is no struggle, that means there is no law of God. If there is no struggle in your life, then maybe the law of God is not active. Then maybe the law of God is not present. But for the Christian, the superego is shaped by a, a moral vision. And that moral vision has a name. His name is Jesus the Christ, and it's his life, death, and resurrec resurrection that, that infuses us with this superego, with a vision of what is possible. It, it, it's shaped by the law of Christ's sacrificial love. It's shaped by the law of grace and mercy. It's shaped by the law of humility and reconciliation and unity. It is shaped by the law of justice. It's shaped by his vision for the world, not my own. Christian witness, Christian witness in times such as these might be best evidence neither in moral perfection nor in moral superiority, but within the struggle itself. I don't think the world needs a church to be morally perfect. I don't think the world needs a church to be morally superior. I think the world needs a church that struggles. Because when we struggle, we're actually pointing to our true north. 
We're actually saying there is a center that holds, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he sets the moral vision and the moral trajectory of our faith and our life together. And there is enough grace within this struggle for every time that we fail, and we will fail, to continue back into this struggle and to be led in this conflict between what sin requires and what sin calls for and and what the law of God in Jesus Christ calls for. Friends, God throughout history has not called people out of the struggle. God has called people into the struggle because that's where the law of God lives in this conflict between this self-centered desire and what God desires of us and for us. And make no mistake, God calls the church. God calls you and me to this same struggle. So may we struggle well for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. To say that we struggle is also to say that there is a moral vision. To say that we struggle as Christians is to say that there is a moral vision whose name is Jesus Christ. And his life, death, and resurrection, his teaching, and his very spirit is what leads us into this life. And there will be battles. And there will be struggles. If there is, that means you're in the right place. That means you are, by God's grace, where you need to be. Let us continue to struggle well. And may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. May God's peace abide with you this day and every day of your life. Amen.